celebrating being set free today, and um, there's nothing more free, at least for me in this moment, than preaching without a mask. Um, I've been trying to do it for weeks now, eating lots of fun stuff in these masks. So I feel free. I hope you feel free as well. Um, this morning, I'm very, very excited that we're actually physically in person. Uh, one of the things I did earlier this week is I went back and I looked at the service from last year. Um, last year, we were pre-recording. Um, and I don't know if it was just like our lack of camera skills, but like if you go, I think it's April 4th, if you really want to take a look at it before Easter dinner, um, and look at that video, it's very dark and gloomy, and it's like almost like an orange tint on the screen, um, which is funny because it's really bright up here. Like that thing is like right here, I'll be sweating in five minutes, right? So it's just like a very, so even the look is very different. So I was thinking about Easter last year and Easter this year, and kind of putting them against each other. And, and last year, you know, the pandemic was still kind of new to us. We've been a couple weeks in. We probably, some of us, maybe too many of us, really thought it was going to be a couple weeks in here. Right? Um, but then, like, this, this idea of sickness and death and, and quarantine, which some of us are still figuring out what that means, right? We were still navigating all these things in this day unknown. And, and I thought about this year, you know, now we're navigating vaccines and, and protocols, right? We have protocols at church. We have protocols at home. We have protocols at work. Uh, at, at work. We have protocols when you walk into the store. Like, all these things are becoming more and more normalized, and I'm not sure anyone knows how we really feel about them. But we're also learning new skills, right? Like, some of us know how to Zoom now. Some of us are still struggling to turn on the video, right? We're learning. Um, I was thinking about how even this year, as we've kind of come through some of that dark cloud, we still feel isolated, which is why I think it's such a blessing that we get to worship together in church. Last year, we had one pre-recorded service. This year, we're doing three in-person services and showing the live stream online. I think that's wonderful. This year, you know, last year you got the joy of wearing, you know, your pajamas, right? Your Sunday's best is your pajamas. This year, some of us even get to dress up a little bit. Somebody came up like, nice to meet you. Who are you? I'm like, you only get this once or twice a year, so you better enjoy it, sir. I'm not going to say who your name is, Lyle Myers. But the other thing about this year, though, is as I was looking back on the video from last year, seeing the heaviness, you know, one thing I was thinking about just now is, you know when you look at old pictures, Right? And you're just like, what was I thinking? What was I wearing? What was wrong with me? Is that only you guys? I don't do it. I don't know if any of us like that. I literally don't do that, which is very impressive. You know, I have some family, I think, working, working online, so they'll remember this. But my head looks vaguely proportional to my body, but it's really been this same size for like 37 years, right? So the fact that I don't look at old pictures and regret is really a miracle because it's been a balloon size, right? But as I was looking at that, I had this, like, first feeling of just, like, oh, man, look how heavy it all is. But as I watched the entire service today, I was reminded of this simple truth. Christ is risen. Christ was risen in 2020. Christ is risen in 2021. That no matter how dark the clouds seem, Christ is still risen. No matter how hard and, and painful life can be, Christ is still risen. No matter how broken we feel, Christ is still risen. No matter how hard life gets, Christ is still risen. And both these Easter's, I found myself praying the prayer of a saint from the Old Testament named Jehoshaphat, who with the angel or the armies of his, his enemies all around him gathering around Jerusalem, he said this wonderful line, which I say to myself often, and sometimes in my spirit, and sometimes out loud. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. 
And that is what we come to celebrate this morning. In my house growing up, we said Resurrection Day, so you guys say Easter, so we'll go with it. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. Happy reminder that we are one together. Happy reminder that we are united in the Spirit. Not just physically in this building or online with our PJs on, but we are united as God's family. What a blessing to be the family of God. What a blessing to also be united with Christians all across the century. We're celebrating Resurrection Day with Christians for thousands of years. What a blessing to think there's really a billion of us today. A billion people who are waking up this morning, a billion plus people who are waking up this morning proclaiming with their lips and hopefully their hearts and hopefully their lives that Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed. We're, we're united with people, not just the world over, but across continents. I have one cousin who's in Australia, and last night she was just like, Happy Easter morning! And I was just like, No, 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 we're in America. It's Saturday. He's still in the grave today, but I'll celebrate with you in 12 hours, right? They're a little ahead of us. But I love that we're united. We're united as God's family. We're united across countries. We're united across borders. And we all, and I, my prayer this morning for us, is not just with our lips, not just with our hearts, but with all of our lives that we're living to proclaim Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 24. The last couple of years we've been kind of doing this resurrection story from a different gospel writer. So we've done Matthew, we've done Mark, so Luke. And if you want to pay attention and get an A in class next year, you know we'll go into general, right? Like, and we'll scoop that to Matthew, but that's like the AP stuff, right? So Luke 24, I'll be reading verses 1 to 12. We also have them up front, so you can follow there as well. Let's, let's read. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, and be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women. Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that today we get to celebrate light conquering darkness, life conquering death. You with love choosing us. Lord, we pray that we're faithful like these women who were with you when the men ran, who were with you at the base of the cross, who were faithful in keeping the Sabbath and in waiting on, on Sunday morning to go and prepare your body. Lord, we thank you for their faithfulness that you chose them to give us this message that Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed. Lord, help us to be faithful. Lord, help us to remember that you not only predicted what would happen, that you not only told your disciples, but all throughout Scripture, you told what would happen, that yes, the Son would come to dash the serpent's head, 
Yes, that he who knew no sin was no sin, and whom there was no sin would become sin to us, so that by dying we may be set free, so that by dying we may know that death no longer has a sting, that the Christ has won the victory, and that's why we celebrate this morning that Christ is risen indeed. So, Lord, help the truth of the resurrection be the fuel for our lives. Help the truth of the resurrection be the word to our lips. Help the truth of the resurrection be the fruit of our lives. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday we began with Palm Sunday, and we talked about how this is Holy Week, and this is what the church calls Holy Week. Well, William Barclay has this beautiful line where he says, when you look at the Jesus story, Holy Week really begins the final act of the Jesus story. And in this final act, you have Jesus walking into town, riding into town on the peaceful coast. The, 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 the symbol is not just to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy, but it's to say when your prophets or when your kings come, they come with their war horses, but I'm going to come on a donkey. I'm going to come because I'm the prince of peace. As he rides into town, he enters the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the one who would redeem not just Israel, but all the world. He enters the Messiah, but he leaves a condemned common prisoner. He leaves killed by the state. He leaves unfairly judged. He leaves treated to an execution that was reserved for the worst of them. He leaves betrayed. He leaves hunted, arrested, beaten, suffering, and crucified. Christ Jesus was betrayed, not just by Judas, but by disciples, men who walked with him for three years, who ran away, who denied him three times. Christ Jesus is hunted, even though all he's trying to do is pray. He's arrested and still has time to heal Malchus' ear. He's beaten, he suffers, he's mocked as he's crucified. But we remember Palm Sunday in the beginning of Holy Week. May we hold on to the simple fact that Jesus is our blessed King, who gave Himself for us, yes, but also for the world. Doing God's will was for the world. And as we navigated through Holy Week, at least around here, we stopped at Monday Thursday. Now, Monday Thursday, you know, we're, we're Anabaptists, so we like to go back and remember that even with all this betrayal present, even with all the suffering to come, even knowing what was ahead of him, Jesus stopped to wash feet. For some of us, we don't even like washing our own feet. Yet Jesus stopped to wash the feet of his disciples, reminding them that we are all called to serve. And then greater than that reminder is later on, John points out that after he washed his feet, he compels all of us. You know, in the Old Testament, they said, love God with all your heart. You know, but when Jesus comes along, he says, love as I have loved. And that's how they will know you belong to me. You call yourself a Christian. You call yourself a follower of Jesus. You call yourself a disciple. The way they know is by how you love. And this blessed King on Monday, Thursday, institutes what we now call communion, reminding us that we will do this on earth and he won't dine with us again until we get to heaven. But in his body and the blood, we're reminded that his body was broken to set us free. Reminded that his blood was shed so that we can know that even the blood that flows in our veins that makes us family on earth doesn't matter if the blood that flowed on Calvary's free. 
this blessed king compels us then to not only look at his example, but to live his example as well. And then we get to Gethsemane, a good Friday. One of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture is ever since I was younger, Jesus was fully God to me. I do not walk on water, although I'd like to. I think that'd be pretty cool, right? I would like to raise people from the dead and, and let the blind see sight. When I read about Jesus, I saw that he was God. But it's Gethsemane that you see his humanity. Because even though Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, even though he told his disciples time and time again, I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. When he gets to Gethsemane, he's so perfectly human because he looks up and says, Father, Dad, are you sure? Are you sure, sure? Are you sure, sure, sure? This is the only way. And it's a reminder to us that God may call us to do great and small things, it's a reminder to us that if Jesus can ask that question, if Jesus can have a little bit of doubt, maybe God can handle our doubts too. That if Jesus, who knew and told people he was going to die, still asked God, are you sure? We can ask God too. Because there's nothing we struggle with that God hasn't brought people through. And I don't just mean one person, or ten people, or a hundred people, millions, maybe even billions of people that God has brought through whatever you're going through. And Jesus is so perfectly human in Gethsemane that he looked at his disciples, the ones he knew would be for him, who couldn't even stay up and watch. And I love that he's so broken that he gets to the point where God says, this is the only way. And he does say, not my will, but your will be done. But remember what the Father does for the Son. He releases the angels to come down and to strengthen him. The Bible says he was sweating like, like, like um, teardrops, like drops of blood to the floor. And the angels come and they strengthen him to prepare him for what is to come. And what is to come is Jesus, who's killed like the worst of these, becoming the least of these. Remember Matthew 25 when he tells that parable about separating the sheep and the goats, right? He says, those who belong to me, if they are hungry, he will feed, they will feed them. If they are thirsty, they'll give them something to drink. If they are strangers or aliens or, 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 or immigrants, they will invite them in. If they are naked people or vulnerable people, they will protect them. If there are people who are sick, they will heal them. If there are people who are imprisoned, not just by a system or, or a jail, but by addiction and pain and suffering, they will set them free. That's who belongs to Jesus, the people who do this. When you look back at Golgotha, and you look back at Calvary's tree, you'll see our Savior was hungry, and His body was the only bread. You'll see that our Savior was thirsty, and all they gave him was, was wine mingled with, with gall and, and this nasty taste. And there's some people who say they did that because they were mocking him. There's others who say they did that because the pain was so great. They were asking him to just succumb to the pain and to kind of ease the pain. Our Savior became a stranger in his own land. He became an immigrant in his own land because you see the Romans couldn't crucify their own citizens. So in Jerusalem, not just the city of David, but the city of God, Jesus is pushed outside to Calvary's hill, to, to Golgotha's hill, to Calvary's tree. And this Jesus becomes, not just out of the city, but he becomes the least of these as he's treated to what the murderers got. 
to what the people who were deemed by Roman society as not just the rabble-rousers, but the people who were, were bringing revolution and, and the worst kind of being a stranger in his own city. And even after he's killed, he doesn't even go to his family's tomb. He has to rely on a stranger, Joseph, or Arimathea, to literally give his tomb and gift it to his family. Jesus was hungry. He was thirsty. He was a stranger. He was naked on Calvary Street. And not only was he exposed, as he's dying on the cross for us, the soldiers are gambling for his clothes in front of his eyes. As if he's beaten and he's so weak and he's sick, they're mocking him falling down and saying, you know, you're just a fake king, kneeling sarcastically, maybe hitting him over the, the head with a fake scepter, taunting him, saying, if you're really God, show your power and come down. Jesus is on that tree in prison. He suffers this awful humiliation. Yet this naked one, this bruised Savior, this broken and bleeding Messiah, Reminds us that even in the midst of this suffering, God is near. The Father and the Spirit are present. And there's a song that Jesus sang, and we'll end with this, so he give you a little something for us. But there's a song that Jesus sings, and we sometimes forget the songs have more than one verse. But the only verse we remember is when Jesus says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, that's just verse 1. We'll end with what the end verse says. But in saying that statement, Jesus isn't just saying, I feel lonely and I'm by myself. But he's calling us to worship. He's saying, even as I'm suffering, I'm singing praises to our God. Because that's what that was. Psalm 22 is a praise song. And if you don't believe me, just read it this week and see how it ends. Jesus is calling the people, even when he says, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He's singing another praise song, that's Psalm 31. So even as he's suffering, he's praising him. I gotta tell you, that's a challenge to me. I think that's a challenge to more than me. That even when things are wrong and hard and really, really tough, we're still living to praise our King. We're still living to praise our Jesus. We're still singing the songs of praise, not just with our, our words or with our heart, but with our lives. Jesus wants us to know that even as He's dying and suffering, God is near. And even that song about Father into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus is showing that he fully trusts and relies on God. And I thought about this this week. Jesus is God. He's been from eternity past. He's been all throughout history. He chooses to come into this moment. And think about the trust he has to have in the Father, that someone who's existed for eternity will now die for three days, and he trusts that God, that God will raise him from the dead. And that's a challenge to us because if Jesus, who always existed, could trust that God could raise him from the dead, how much more should we be trusting God no matter what we're facing this morning? How much more should we be trusting God no matter what darkness we're in, no matter what thing we're struggling with? How much more should we trust God if Jesus himself will say, Father, I'm giving it all to you? May that be our prayer, because that's also a fruit of the resurrection, full and complete trust to God that even when we have to die, that God can raise us up to new life. Amen? And this blessed King gave himself into the hands of the Father for all of us, for all the world. When we get to these stories, he has now been three days in the grave, and hope is lost. 
most of Jesus' followers thought he was going to come and, and establish their nation and they were going to be great and the Messiah was going to reign. But that didn't happen. Three days in the grave and the disciples are lost. Well, mostly the men, right? They had ran away except John. They had stayed away far except the women who were at the base of the cross. And even on Saturday, while they were out there, you know, like trying to figure out what's happening, what's going on, Jesus is dead. It was the women who were faithful to go to the market to prepare for Sunday morning to keep the Sabbath, right? The women were faithful the entire time. Three days in the grave. And God is still telling us this morning that I bring dead to life. That I bring heaven to earth. That I bring light to dark. That I bring healing to brokenness. Three days in the grave and we can sing that song of old that those sorrow lasts for the night. His joy, his joy, his joy comes in in the morning or like Jesus' best friend sings, though the dark may seem so dark, the true light is already shining. And when we get to Sunday morning, we see that Jesus who had told them at the Last Supper, I will rise, risen again. Arisen to new life. I want to stop here and honor these women. Because I think one thing we've done wrong for most of the last 1,700 years, I blame my African brother Augustine. I praise him a lot, but I blame him for this one. And partner with Constantine. But starting around 300, you know, we stopped listening to the voices of women. I think it's very intentional by her God that in a culture that's not much different than ours, right? In a culture that didn't value the voices of women, God chooses women to be the mouthpiece of the resurrection, the most important thing that happens, I would say, in all of Scripture. Because yes, Jesus died. But Paul says, without the resurrection, we're fools. Without the resurrection, we have no faith. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. And it's the women that the society doesn't value that God chooses to be the mouthpiece, to tell us and to tell the world that Christ is risen indeed. So we have Mary Magdalene, we have Joanna, we have Mary, the, the mother of James, and there were so many others. They were faithful to be there at the cross when we, the men, ran. They were faithful to hold the Sabbath and worship on Saturday. Saturday is not just the day that Christ was in the tomb, and it's not just the day of despair because he's dead. Saturday was worship for these women, and it's a reminder to us that no matter what's going on, we are to worship. And they were faithful to wake up early Sunday morning to go to the tomb, to, to prepare the body so, yes, it wouldn't sink, to prepare the body so, so to honor their Savior. And I love that they were dutiful. They were going to anoint and rinse the body and put spices on them. But when they get there, the angels showed up. And the angels asked this wonderful question, which challenges me forever. He says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He has risen, just as he said. And the reason I think it's important that we highlight these women is because even the disciples, the men didn't believe. Peter was the closest, and he runs to the tomb. He sees the linen there, and no body, and he's still wondering what's going on. Remember why everyone's in Jerusalem, the Passover, something the Jewish people still celebrate to this day, that, that day of grace where God literally passed over the houses, right, and saved them, and they commemorate with the lamb of sacrifice. But there's no Passover without Moses. There's no Moses without Pharaoh's daughter who takes him in and raises him up in privilege. 
There's no Moses without his mom, Jochebed, who not only birthed him to life, but gets to serve as not only his nanny, but to teach him about Yahweh, right? The God who's with us, the God who will be for us, the God who's with us now in everything. He teaches him about Yahweh. Without Moses, without Jochebed, there is no Moses. Without Miriam, there's also no Moses, right? Because she was the one who babysat him. She was the one who watched him on that floating marsh creek or whatever. But she was also the one who was brilliant to say, oh, hello, princess of Egypt. I think not only do you keep this baby, but I know just the person to take care of him, my mother. Without without Kippur and Pua, who were Hebrew midwives in a time when Pharaoh was so paranoid and he was literally killing Israelite boys, they stood up to Pharaoh, stood up to the Pharaoh of the, the most powerful man in the known world at the time, stood up to him and saved those babies. Without women, there's no Moses. Without Moses, there's no Passover. But I think the same thing God uses the same recipe in the New Testament. Because without women, without women at the base of the cross, Jesus died. Without women praising on Saturday morning. Without women being the first ones at the tomb to say, Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed. We would not have the message because we, the men, did not believe Christ is risen. Let's hold on to the testimony of these sisters of faith who are united by our God who says your society may not value them, but I always value them. And the most important thing is Passover. The most important thing is taking them out of Egypt. The women will lead the way. The most important thing is Jesus raised from the dead. The women will teach you what Jesus predicted. Because you see, the resurrection matters. It matters because in the gospel, Jesus time and time again predicts what's going to happen, predicts he's going to die. But I've been thinking about all the different witnesses. I've been thinking about the angels. Usually when you think about angels, they're messengers. But I've been thinking this week about the angels as witnesses. How they had this God who created them, who they're with eternity past, come into earth. And how they have to sit back and watch him go through life as a man. I've been thinking about Gethsemane where they looked down and they must have thought to themselves, he really is going to do this. And after God says, yes, son, this is the only way, I thought about the angels who went down and strengthened him. I thought about the angels who were probably above him watching him die on Calvary saying, oh my goodness, he's really doing this. I talked about the angels that every gospel point out that were there on Sunday morning to celebrate that Christ is risen indeed. What a witness to the angels. And what a witness to, the, to us about the empty tomb. Because the empty tomb is a reminder to us that sin has been defeated, that death has been defeated, and that the victory is also ours. The victory didn't just happen on Calvary, it happened on Sunday morning when God defeated it forever. And I also thought about the witness of all the people who got to see the risen Jesus. Ever since I was a kid, I just thought that Jesus came back. Maybe hung out for a couple days, you know, and he said, hey, guys, we want to have it now. The scripture tells us that Jesus is actually around for 40 days. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says that over 500 people saw him at one event. Jesus didn't just go to Peter. Jesus didn't just go to the disciples. Jesus didn't just appear to the women on the road. Jesus keeps appearing to the people. And Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, says, there are over 500 people living now. And at that point, it's been 20, maybe 30 years later after he's up in heaven, after he's ascended. And Paul actually writes and says, there are over 500 people living right now who saw the resurrected Jesus. And those people, what about their transformation? Think about some of these men who ran 
some of these men like Peter who denied Jesus three times, but now get to be one of the rocks that the church is built on. I thought about Saul, who is actually going around and actively killing Christians. That's what he's doing. And the risen, resurrected Christ appears to him on that Damascus road, and he becomes Paul, the greatest writer in the New Testament. Maybe the greatest Christian theologian ever. Not even maybe. The greatest Christian theologian ever. And he was one who was literally killing us for believing in Jesus. I also thought about the, the reaction of the people, the reaction of the chief priests and Pharisees who, who paid the soldiers to go and say, Jesus is not risen. But the last thing that I think proves the resurrection is not just all these witnesses, but it's something that Jesus said to us before he goes to heaven. He not only commands them to go and be witnesses in Judea, locally, in Samaria, regionally, to the ends of the earth, which, yes, it means the whole world, but there's some theologians who actually think that's a mention to Africa, and I'm like, that's great, but Africa's where life begins. We're not the end of the earth. We're the beginning of the earth, right? If you don't believe me, look at the science book. It's true. But the thing about that great commission is not only Jesus calls us to be witnesses, he says, you will go, go and make disciples, of all the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And I think one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection is God's church. It's you, the church. It's all these people who believe. People who believe for 2,000 years now. People who believe across all the continents. People who believe even this morning as they're waking up screaming and living with their lives that Christ is risen indeed. The proof of the resurrection to me is transformed life. People I've seen conquer addiction. People I've seen come through the darkness of the dark. People I've seen live transformed lives to the point where you can't, you look at their lives and you just know that God is real just because of the transformation you've seen. I know the resurrection is real because the people I've seen walking around dead, but now God has brought to life. Of people I know who are battling and battling and battling, and now their lives are testimonies of victory over sin. Of people who've gone through the world to preach that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. The resurrection must continue to be alive in the sin. For thousands of years, people have said this couldn't happen. There's a lot of faith who says, well, Jesus is can't be God because God did not die. But it must be all lying in the sand because the resurrection changes everything. It reminds us that the work on Calvary was complete. It reminds us that death never has the last word. It reminds us that light ends in the end. The darkness loses even setting up. It reminds us that whatever we face, God can see us through. You know, we live in a society and a culture that says, tell your story, tell your truth. The resurrection takes us and invites us to take a step back and to tell Jesus' story, to tell Jesus' truth. And it reminds us of the witness of people that let our lives be a witness, that let our stories be a witness of God's healing power. And the thing I love about the resurrection is it compels joy. If you know this morning that you've been set free, you can't help but be joyful. 
If you know this morning that people you love have gone from death to life, you can help be joyful. If you know this morning that people who are right now struggling, but you see the progress as God is lifting them up and raising them up and they're taking baby steps, you can help but be joyful. If you know the truth of salvation, that Jesus has set you free, that sin has been defeated, that death has been defeated, you can help but be joyful. And that joy goes into hope. And it's the hope that Christ has conquered hell. That Christ has conquered death. That Christ has set us free.